Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Really excited to help you learn God's Word here at Mark Driscoll Ministries. We like to help people learn God's Word and we like to help leaders teach God's Word. And we've got a lot of new resources for you, all free, through the great book of 1 John in a series titled, The Father Heart of God. John was Jesus' nearest and dearest, closest and most faithful, best friend, and as an elderly man, the last living disciple of Jesus, he writes this amazing letter, and in his words, we hear the Father heart of God. I had the opportunity to teach this book in 13 weeks as a Bible study for the core launch team of the Trinity Church that I'm having the honor of planting in Scottsdale, Arizona, and I wanted you to learn God's Word, and so we've also provided for you about a 20,000 word study guide. This will help you study it personally with your family and or a small group. And for those of you who really like to go deep, we've got a free 240,000 word research brief that was put together by a team of scholars and professors and we'll give it all to you for free at markdriscoll.org. Go ahead and sign up and any gift that you give will help us to give more Bible teaching away. Thanks for the help. Father God, thank you so much for an opportunity to study the scriptures today. Holy Spirit, you have inspired these scriptures to be written, so we invite you to illuminate our understanding and to empower our obedience so that we could understand what God the Father was saying to us through his word and that we could live in light of his revealed truth, becoming the people that he requires and he empowers for us to become. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being our savior. We thank you for being our example. And today, Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that despite our sin, you chose not to hate us or be indifferent to us, but to come and love us and to give us an example in which to follow. So we ask for the grace to do so today in your good name. Amen. Well, some years ago, a couple years ago, actually, I was in the, uh, the most painful, difficult uh, season of my entire life in ministry. And the same was true for my wife, Grace, and our five kids. And it was a very, very, very difficult time in every single way. And so I wanted to learn and I wanted to grow and I wanted to learn how to respond to people. So I, I had the opportunity to meet with some Christian counselors and pastors and I jumped on planes and went around and visited some significant evangelical leaders that I had high regard for and just asked them, what can I learn from this and how should I respond to this? And one man in particular gave me some tremendous counsel. There are certain phrases or statements that people will make in your life, and it's almost like the Holy Spirit highlights that in your soul. You walk away going, okay, that was a gift from the Lord. That's like an anchor for this season of life. And one of the things that he said was, uh, relationships define your life. Relationships define your life. And then we had a long conversation about how relationships define your life for good or for evil for blessing or for cursing, for life or for death. And that's true. And you think of that for a moment. How many relationships do you have? How many people do you know? How many lives intersect with yours? Family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, people that you're estranged from, reconciled to, all the complexities of life. How many people are you in relationship with? How many people's lives intersect with yours? And it's a staggering number. And if that statement is true, that relationships define our life, then how we treat one another absolutely affects all of our life and all of their life and all of our lives together. Uh, that being said, there, there, there is an opportunity for us 
to determine today how we're going to treat people in general, but one another in particular. And one way is the natural way. The other is the supernatural way. The natural way is the normal way that people who are not Christians treat one another. And this is very simple. I treat you the way you treat me. That's the natural way that people treat one another. So if you, if you hate me, I, I hate you. That's easy enough, right? You don't need to, to have the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. Right? If you're indifferent toward me, you don't care about me, then I'm, I'm indifferent toward and I don't care about you. Right? We have a little statement in our culture, they're dead to me. It means they're not dead, but they're dead to me. I don't care. I don't pay any attention to them. I'm indifferent toward them. I ignore them. I have no regard for them. And the third natural way to respond is you love me, so I, I love you because you have such good taste. Right? So, uh, well, that's a very natural way of behaving. Hate those who hate you, be indifferent toward those who are indifferent toward you, and love those who love you. The supernatural way, God's way, the Holy Spirit's way, is that we would not treat people the way that they treat us, that we would treat people the way that God treats us. The natural way is we treat people the way they treat us. The supernatural way is we treat people the way God treats us. And here's what the story of the Bible is, that we hated God. That's what sin is. Sin is hatred toward God. And God chose not to hate us. God chose not to be indifferent toward us. You made a problem, you need to fix it. You've separated yourself from me. You need to sort of resolve this issue yourself. And then you need to return to me. Good luck seeking me and finding me. God was not hating of us. He was not indifferent toward us. God chose to to love us. And some of you, before you met Jesus, you were indifferent toward God. You could care less. Some of you were actively hating God. You opposed him. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're in one of those two categories. You're either indifferent toward Jesus, you don't care, or you hate Jesus. You disagree with the fundamental beliefs of Jesus and the Bible. And God's answer is not one of indifference toward those who are indifferent, and it's not hatred toward those who have hatred. God's response is love to those who are indifferent and those who hate him. And I was a person, before I became a Christian at the age of 19, I was indifferent. I could have cared less. If someone said, do you want to go to church? No, I don't. Do you want to read the Bible? No, thank you. Can I pray for you? There's no need. I was living my life indifferent toward God. I didn't hate God. I just didn't care. Some of you have been or are in a relationship with God where yours is marked by indifference, others of you marked by hatred. God's response to us is to send Jesus, and Jesus is not indifferent, and he doesn't hate us, he comes to love us. And that's a supernatural love that Jesus gives to us, and Jesus wants to flow through us in how we treat one another. How does this come to pass? Well, he He comes to love. He comes to pursue. He comes to serve those who are indifferent and those who hate him. And one man who was present to sort of witness and observe all of this is a man named John. And he's going to be the man who teaches us today from the scriptures that he wrote by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this man, John, he loved Jesus. Jesus loved him. In fact, the Bible says that he is the one whom Jesus loved. And he has learned how to respond supernaturally, not naturally, in his relationships. He's seen his brother murdered for being a Christian. 
He's seen his closest friends murdered and martyred for being a Christian. He doesn't respond with indifference or hate. He responds with Christ-like supernatural love. And here is an elderly man between the ages of 80 and 100. He's an older man. He's gonna talk a lot about love 40 times in five chapters. And today he's going to teach us how to respond supernaturally in our relationships. And so, as I said, there are three ways to treat people. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 gives us the first option, hatred. Hatred. Here's what he says. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Okay. How many of you would agree the world would be better if people were more loving? Right. You'll see lots of causes and bumper stickers. I've never seen the one that says, I'm against love. It needs to stop. Right. We would all vote yes. More love would make the world a better place. Amen. And what he's saying is, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, that people should be loving. This is something that we agree to, but we don't abide by. It goes all the way back to Leviticus 19, 18. In the Old Testament, God says, love one another. This is an old command. Furthermore, when Jesus comes, they ask him, Jesus, what's the summary of the whole Bible? He says, love God and love people. That's his summary. John was there in John 13, where it is recorded, where Jesus says, I give you a new commandment to love one another as I have loved you. And by this, the whole world will know that you are my disciples, that you're my people, because you love one another. The supernatural mark of a true Christian is love. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's why the evidence of God's work in our life is love. And if we treat each other in a supernatural way, the world that only has natural relationships looks in and says, something is different about those people. They love those who are indifferent toward them. They love those who hate them. They must have a source of love that is outside of them, that flows through them. And we would say yes, and his name is Jesus. And by the person, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit, we can love. We can love by the power of God. And he says, we should not be like Cain. Now we're going to get into a case study. We should love, but we don't. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Here's a case study on love and hate. And here's the truth. It doesn't matter how many wars we wage, how many dollars we raise, right? how many protests we hold, or how many talk radio calls we make, unless the human condition is dealt with, we continue to behave in a way that is natural, not supernatural. We continue to respond to indifference and hate with indifference and hate. And when God changes our heart, we then can respond in love. And so he uses a case study and some would say, well, it's a cultural problem, it's, it's a modern problem, it's, it's a recent problem. In fact, it's an ancient problem. He goes back to Cain and Abel. We like to blame our lack of love and our hatred and our indifference on our genetics. Well, Cain and Abel had a perfect mother and father, at least until they fell. We like to blame our culture. Well, they didn't have a culture. They had a mom and a dad, and then there's a couple of kids. That's it, right? There's really no one to blame but yourself at that point. If you look at the sum total of the population of the earth, it's just a couple of people. Adam and Eve are the first two people in the history of the world. They're created by God. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. These are the first two brothers in human history. And what does Cain do to Abel? He kills him. This hatred problem is an old problem. This lack of love problem is an old problem. It's, it's, it's so 
amazing that sin leads to death. And as soon as we sin against God, love stops flowing through us. Hatred starts filling in us. And as a result, the first two brothers are doing life together and one murders the other. So this is the case study. Now, if you know the story of uh, Cain and Abel, and you can read it in Genesis 4 if you want to study it when you get home. Um, The two men have vocations. So Cain is a farmer and Abel is a rancher. True or false, those are acceptable vocations in the sight of God. Are they okay? It's okay. If you're a farmer, that's okay. You're a rancher, that's okay. Especially thousands of years ago, right? The first few people on the earth, one's working with the animals, one's working with the, the plants, the fruit of the ground, and you need both to survive and to live. These are viable vocations. And so what they're going to do, they're going to have their equivalent of going to church. You can meet with God alone, but we come to worship God together. So that's what Cain and Abel do. This is the equivalent of going to church. So the first two brothers come to meet with the Lord. And and the Bible says that they both brought their first fruits. So one would have brought the first fruits of the harvest of the land. The other would have brought the first and the best of their livestock. And when it uses that word first fruits, this is incredibly important. And it uses this language throughout the Bible. This is where we give God our first and our best, our first and our best. And what it shows is number one, that God is our highest priority. We give to God first because God is first in our life and he's our priority. Secondly, it's an act of faith. God, if I give to you first, I trust you to provide for my needs. Thirdly, it also makes us good stewards. If the first fruits go to the Lord, then we have to be good stewards while using the rest of the resources we have because we have a limited finite amount. And sometimes people will say, well, I can't give to the Lord because I can't afford it. Well, God is to be first fruits. Before cable television, before high-speed internet access, before nice boots, the first priority is supposed to be the Lord. God first, God first, God first, God first, and God first and best of your tithes and offerings of your gifts. So they're coming to meet with the Lord and they bring their first fruits. They both have acceptable jobs in the sight of God. They're bringing their first fruits, their first and best, which is what we should do as well. And the Bible says that God looked at the, uh, the offering from Cain and rejected him and looked at the offering of Abel and accepted him. And that Cain got very angry. And as a result, God rebuked him and said, anger, is crouching at your door. You're you're angry toward your brother. You need to deal with that. Cain didn't heed that counsel from the Lord. And as a result, Cain, who was rejected, murdered Abel, who was accepted by God. That's what happened. It says, don't hate like Cain and Abel. The Bible says that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we can hate one another to the point that we're actually considering murder toward one another. And this is an old demonic problem that goes all the way back to the first brothers, Cain and Abel. So the question that people oftentimes have when it comes to Cain and Abel is this, why did God reject Cain? Why did he accept Abel? If they both had acceptable jobs, if they both brought the first fruits of their income and wealth, if they both came to meet with the Lord at the same place at the same time, Why is one acceptable? Why is the other unacceptable? Here's why. The problem was not that which was in their hands. The problem was that which was in Cain's heart. When we come to worship the Lord, and here we are today meeting to worship the Lord, God cares about what's in your hands 
and what's in your heart. See, the Bible says that man looks at the outward. What did you bring in your hands? God looks at the heart. He sees and knows all. It speaks of this as well in another book of the Bible called Hebrews. In the 11th chapter, the fourth verse, it says that Abel brought his offering with a heart of faith and love and devotion and commitment to the Lord, and that Cain did not have faith in devotion to and love for the Lord. For Abel, his offering was a way of showing his love to God. Uh, Cain was using his offering in an effort to manipulate God. Sometimes people will give even generously, thinking that they can manipulate God. That's essentially what I believe Cain was doing. Uh, Some years ago, I was meeting with a man, and he confessed to me that he had been tremendously unfaithful for an extended period of time on multiple occasions toward his wife. He had been unfaithful to his marital covenant vows. And so he told me this, he confessed to me in a pastoral counseling meeting, and I swear to you, he then at the end pulled out his checkbook. And he said, uh, he said well, I'll, I'll, I'll write a, a big check. And he wrote a check for about $200,000 if my memory is correct. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm sure God's very angry with me, so I need to pay him back. I said, no, it doesn't work like that. Jesus paid God back. He died in your place for your sins so that your debts are paid. I said, if you're going to give to the Lord, it's not to manipulate the Lord because he can't be bought, but it's to worship the Lord out of a pure heart. I said, I said you know, we're gonna have to tell your wife what you've done. She has a right to know. He said, no, don't do that. I'll write a bigger check. Well, I can't be bought and Jesus can't be bought. Cain's heart is like that. He has sin in his heart. He's jealous of his brother. He's angry toward his brother. He has malice toward his brother. And he comes to the Lord and wants to give an offering. Here's a big amount, Lord. And God says, no, that's not okay because I see your heart. This isn't out of a place of faith and love and holiness and worship. This is a place out of manipulation and self-righteousness and appearance before others and trying to earn my love. You don't understand how I operate. So here's the big idea. When we come to worship the Lord, one of the ways that we guard against having hate toward others is by worshiping the Lord with our hands and our heart. Abel brought to the Lord an offering in his hands, but he had love for God and faith in God in his heart. Cain came to worship the Lord with an offering in his hands, but no love and no faith for the Lord in his heart. Here's what I need you to know. that One of the ways we work against hating other people and treating them as God has treated us is by being worshipers who pay careful attention to what we bring to worship in our hands. Lord, what am I gonna give? And also what's in our heart? Where am I truly at? So my question to you today, I love you, but I'm gonna ask you a few hard questions. Here's the first one. What did you bring in your hands today to worship the Lord? Because that matters. And what did you bring in your heart today to worship the Lord? Is there anyone you're jealous of? Is there anyone you're seething against? Is there anyone that you're embittered toward? Is there anyone that you're unforgiving of? Is there anyone that you actually do hate? And if you could do harm toward them or possibly even see them die, you would be okay with that if there wasn't a consequence for you. Some people will say, well, it doesn't matter what I give to the Lord, he knows my heart. No, the heart and the hands matter. Others would say, well, I bring with my hands and I give a generous offering. No, it also matters what's in your heart. And here's the deal. 
I don't know your heart. I don't know your heart. You don't know my heart, but God knows all of our hearts. And so as we come to meet with the Lord, even today, we've got to ask, Lord, have I brought in my hands what you want me to give? And am I willing to examine that which is in my heart and my attitude, my disposition, my emotional feelings toward other people? Because God does care about both things. He then continues in 1 John 3, 15, uh, 13 through 15. And what he says is, we should love and expect to be hated. How many of you have loved someone anticipating that you would be loved? And you're like, this isn't working. Okay. That's a natural way of thinking, not a supernatural way of thinking. A natural way of thinking is, God has loved me, I will love you so that you will love me. What he's saying is, God can love you, you can love others, and they can hate you. And you say, well, that's surprising. That's why he says, do not be surprised. This isn't a shock. How many of you have behaved towards someone else in a supernatural way and they've responded to you in a very natural way? Like, I love them and they hated me or they were at least indifferent toward me. So he says, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world, what? Hates you. And what he talks about regarding the world, it's a, it's a complicated word. It appears, this is originally Greek. I think there's seven senses. I'm a nerd, but there's like seven senses of this word. Sometimes it means like, groups of people, so it's not just Jewish people, but other nations. Sometimes it means the physical planet. Sometimes it means entire categories and groups of people. I believe in this sense, when he uses the word world, he does so in a pejorative, in a negative way. And what it is, is it's, it's culture that's opposed to God. Uh, he's gonna use the word repeatedly in 1 John of antichrist and antichrist. That's in place of and against Jesus. It's anti, meaning... Uh, there is a cultural pressure that is demonic in nature that says we don't want Jesus at the center. We're anti-Christ. We want Jesus out of the center and we want someone or something else in the center. Usually it's a man, a woman, it's humanity, it's us, it's a person to be in Jesus' place. So for the Christian, it's not that Jesus is a priority for us. He is central for us. That it's not that we have Jesus and then other priorities, it's that we have Jesus at the center and everything is connected to the person and work of Jesus. So our finances and our gender and our sexuality and our marriage and our vocation, our spirituality, it's all Christ-centered. It's all centered in Jesus. To be anti-Christ is to stay Jesus out of the center and someone or something else in the center. That's anti-Christ and that's what it means to be worldly. To be worldly simply means to have someone or something other than Jesus at the center of your life as your greatest hope and your deepest affection and your strongest longing and devotion. Okay. And so what he's saying is don't be surprised that the world hates you. If you have Jesus at the center and they don't, there's a conflict. And you can love them as Jesus has loved you, but they will still hate you. Don't be surprised. Sometimes as Christians, we get hated, despised, and opposed because we deserve it. Amen? I know I have. I'll just speak of me, not of all Christians. I'll just speak of this Christian. There are some people that say, I don't like you because of what you've said or done. And I would have to say, I agree with you. I had somebody come to me recently. They said, I don't agree with everything you've said. I said, well, we have that in common. I don't agree with everything I've said either, <laughs> right? But there are other times that as a Christian, you will suffer not for doing the wrong thing, but for doing the right thing, not for saying the wrong thing, but for saying the right thing. 
you'll get in trouble because you're echoing God. That's what he's talking about here. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. In the same way, we look at Cain and Abel and you can't look at Abel and say, well, what did he do to deserve that? The answer is he was innocent. He didn't, he didn't do anything. He, he loved the Lord and he served the Lord and he worshiped the Lord and his brother got jealous and angry and killed him. So Cain is a type, he's a picture of worldliness and Abel is a picture, he's a type of godliness. And just as Cain hated Abel, but didn't have a reason to do so, that a worldly culture will hate the kingdom of God and that those who are committed to the worldly system will have conflict and opposition to the children of God. And he says, don't be shocked and surprised when this happens. How many of you, you were a brand new Christian, you met Jesus, you went and told your family and friends and they they were not very excited about that. You're like, that was surprising. I, I talked about Jesus love me. And I came to tell you that me and Jesus love you. And then you were really unhappy with me that I'd become a Christian. What he's saying is don't be surprised that the world hates you. And let me say in our day, this happens politically, culturally, and socially. This is where there are two competing kingdoms, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness. There is God and Satan. There is a cosmic battle that is waging and raging. And there are some fundamental beliefs in this world that are diametrically opposed to God's word. And they play themselves out in the arena of the social, the political, and the moral. And if you stand up and say, well, God made marriage and he made men and women. Well, you better wear a helmet because there's going to be a head-on collision. And the question is, who or what is at the center? If we're Christians, we say the center is the Bible. The center is Jesus Christ. And the world says, we want the Bible and Jesus out of the center. And there's a collision and a conflict between those two realities, those two ideologies. And, and I'll tell you, in the age of media and social media, it only escalates. If you are someone who loves Jesus and is open and honest about your biblical convictions on moral, political, and social issues, true or false, if you leave the comment section open, you will find that there are some in the world who hate you, okay? And so even responding needs to be in love, in love. Love is not denying the truth. Love is not changing the truth. Love is delivering the truth in love. That's what it is. I always say that I'm a mailman, not an editor. You'd be very happy if you opened the mail and the mailman had edited your mail, right? Christians are supposed to be mailmen, mailwomen, not editors. We don't say, well, this is what God said. I'm sure if I deliver this mail to the world, I will get killed. So I will make some edits along my delivery. We don't do that. In love, we say, God loves me, God loves you. I love you, here's the mail. But don't be surprised, he says, when you deliver the mail, if the world hates you. There's going to be some reaction. For those of you who are younger, you need to know that this will cost you social capital. By younger, I mean those under 40. The Bible tends to speak of older people as those over 40 and younger people as those over under 40. Uh, I used to be younger, now I'm older, I'm 45. And there's intense pressure in social media today that you would compromise your Christian convictions so that you would not be hated by the world. But let me say this, if you want to offend, you have to determine, will I offend the world or will I offend the Lord? And if you decide I'm not going to offend the world, then what you will say and do will offend the Lord. 
And if you're going to live in obedience to the Lord, you need to know that it will be seen as an offense by those who are in the world. And the question is not, will you offend? The question is, who will you offend? Do you understand that? And if you say, well, I I love the Lord, so I'm willing to be hated by the world. I will love the world as they hate me. I will love the world like Jesus loves me. Because here's the truth. Before we met Jesus, we were either indifferent toward him or we hated him and he loved us. And it was his kindness that led us to repentance. And sometimes it's just enduring the onslaught of opposition in love and courage and devotion and commitment and faithfulness out of a sincere love for the eternal well-being of the person that in time God might even use as a witness to help transition their heart from one of hate or indifference toward one of love and commitment. But I tell you, in this day and age, if you are a younger person who puts your social capital and your public persona above your worship of God, you will find yourself in a precarious position. Don't be surprised that the world hates you. Just, you don't have to do this, but if you have free time and you want to get rid of it, here's one way to do so. Pick any social, cultural, moral issues, name it, and then just put a Bible verse on it and throw it on social media and see what happens. And it won't be, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It will be, we hate you, we hate you, we hate you, we hate you. What he says is, don't be surprised. We know that we have passed out of death into life. We know that we've gone from no relationship with the Lord to living relationship with the living Lord because we love the brothers. Love is both a mark and a test of a Christian. It's a mark, it shows that we are Christians, and it's a test to prove that our Christian faith is in fact true. How many of you, you have seen your love, compassion, empathy, concern, regard for others go up since you met Jesus? For sure I have. And some of you say, well, you're not in a good place. Well, imagine where I was. I mean, I've already made progress. Okay. I I, I have grown in love and by God's grace will continue to grow in love. That's the mark of a Christian. He goes on to say, um, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And we know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What you can't say is, God put his life in me so that I could kill you. See, life doesn't produce death. Death produces death. Life produces life. If God's life is in you, it produces God's life through you. It doesn't produce death. Now, what he is referring to here is the heart of murder ultimately originates in hate. So I would ask you, who do you hate? And by murder, there are various ways to murder people. Some of us would like to murder their reputation by saying things about them that are perhaps not entirely true or taking the worst day of their life and making sure that everyone is aware of it. Sometimes we want to murder their business. We want to take them down financially and make them pay. It's vengeance. Sometimes we want to murder them relationally and socially. We want everyone to just abandon them and to to leave them isolated and alone. Sometimes we want to murder them maritally. We want to harm their family. We want to damage their reputation and relationship. There are various ways that we seek to do harm, that we seek to attack. And sometimes what we will do is we will say, well, it's not like I murdered somebody. 
I just attacked them and I harmed them and I poured out vengeance and wrath on them, but I'm still a pretty good person because I didn't take it all the way to murder. Amen? Well, here's what Jesus has to say. Um, Jesus speaks of this very issue in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said that those of old, you shall not murder. That's the sixth commandment. Don't murder people. And that's different than killing people. The state can execute someone, a police officer could defend themselves in a firefight, a soldier can go defend their nation in war. What we're talking about here is murder, that is the taking of an innocent life without cause. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, you idiot, will be liable to the hell of fire. What Jesus says is it's not just the actions, it's the intent that also matter because God doesn't look at just what's in your hands or what you do with your hands. God also looks at your heart and he knows the intentions and inclinations of your heart. You say, well, I didn't murder him. Jesus said, well, you did in your heart. You did in your heart. And the only thing that is separating your heart from your hands is just time or opportunity. What Jesus says is that hating someone is equal to murdering someone in the sight of God. Say, how do I know if I hate someone? Angry. And what this means is you've allowed your hurt to turn into your hate. Oftentimes, when we're angry with someone, you say, you're angry with them. Immediately, what happens is the legal brief starts to roll out of our mouths. Well, here's what they said, here's what they did. This is how they made me feel. This is the consequences. This is the pain they've caused. And all of a sudden, the terrible tale rolls forth from her tongue and we could tell you exactly why we're angry. All of which may be true. But again, the natural way to treat people is the way they treat us. The supernatural way to treat people is the way that God treats us. We sin against God, he forgives us. They sin against us, we need to forgive them. Now, this is not easy. I used to think that Christianity was weak. It's actually very strong. I used to think it was very easy. Now I think it's very hard. This is tough. You've got to be pretty resilient, pretty strong to to live this kind of lifestyle. I will love those who hate me. That's what Jesus says to do. That's a difficult thing because the natural response is, you punch me, I punch you back. That's what we do, right? You punch me, I pray for you. I got to learn that. That doesn't just, that's not my natural inclination and response, Amen. Who are you angry at? Who, when you hear their name, you hear their story, you see their social media posts, you, you, you bump into them, you just, you can feel it physically. Your body's giving you some, you're like, I don't like them. I don't like seeing them. I'm angry at them. I've not forgiven them. I can't be around them. They arouse a lot of emotion in me that's negative. The key is to forgive them. You say, but But does that mean they're forgiven? No, what it means is you're passing that case on to a higher court. You're saying, Jesus, you deal with this one. I need to move on with my life, but I'm not taking hate into my future and anger into my future. It's a gift for you. We forgive our enemies because if we don't, we become just like them. Who are you angry toward? Insults. How do you speak to people, especially those you're angry at? What do you say? Proverbs says that certain people's words are like the thrust of a sword. You can see that they're causing harm and damage. It's a violent, spiritual, emotional attack. You can even see it when, let's say, a couple is talking. I had this occasion not long ago. 
um, was at a store and saw a man and a woman talking and I could see her recoil physically as he spoke. It literally is like he stabbed her and he was murdering her. Proverbs says that words are like swords and that's how we stab one another to murder one another with our words. And some people will say, well, I didn't do anything. I just said something. Well, insults, critical comments, tearing others down. Somebody say, but it's true. Okay, then find a way to say it in love. See, love doesn't deny the truth. Love wants what's best for the other. Love is trying to bring life, not death, trying to bring correction, not destruction. Who are you angry with? Who do you insult, speak negatively to or about when they're not in your presence? And I'll tell you, in the age of social media, Boy, getting angry and insulting without having to actually deal with a human being face to face, it provides lots of opportunities for the flesh. We'll be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the fires of hell. Here's what you learn about nicknames. There's two kinds of people that we nickname, those we really love and those we really hate. True? I call my wife Beauty. I have for years. My kids have got nicknames. We got five kids. The youngest kid has got more nicknames than any child in the history of the world. Okay? We all love him, so he's got a lot of, like, literally, we've listed him out. It's like, what, 20 or 30 nicknames, right? Guppy, little buddy, um, I mean, it just goes on. Nick, we don't know why. One day he decided to change his name to Jake when he was little, so we call him Jake, his name's Gideon. He's got a lot of nicknames, right? Boo-boo, because that's what Yogi Bear calls a little bear. Like, he's got a lot of nicknames because we love him. When you love someone, you give them a nickname, Amen. When you hate someone, you also give them a nickname. Now, I won't give you examples of what those might be, but you can let your imagination just, we'll just give you a moment to think about it, okay? So someone that you don't like, do you have a nickname for them? You stop referring to them by their name and what you've created is a caricature. You've created a, a role that they're playing to where they're no longer even human. You're not dealing with the actual person. You're, you're dealing with a caricature of them. And what that does, that allows you to be angry toward them and insult them and to hate them and to, to murder them in your heart because you're no longer even dealing with them. Jesus says, if these things are present, anger, insults, and nicknaming, then you know that there's hatred in your heart and you're living out of the same place of Cain. And that the only difference between his actions and your actions is that he did with his hands what he felt in his heart. And maybe you might not take it to murder, but the truth is sometimes causing someone a little bit of pain every day for their life can be more painful than just ending their life. It's torture, it's torment, hatred. The natural way to respond is hatred. John has spent a lot of time arguing that if we want to have love from God to us flow through us, hatred is not how we are to treat other people regardless of how they have treated us because God in Christ has chosen not to hate us. The second option is indifference. The second way that we can treat people is indifference. So I would ask you, who could you care less about? Somebody that you know. You're like, if I never see them again, that's fine. If I never talk to them again, that's fine. I'm so sick of them, I'm done with them. I don't have any regard for them. I don't pray for them. I don't have any concern for them. They're dead to me. 
Here's what he has to say regarding indifference. 1 John 3, 16 and 17, by this we know that we love. Again, all of the conversation is driving away from hate and indifference, and he's driving toward love. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, financial provision, and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Here's the big idea. Love gives. If you drive up in a really expensive new car, you know what that tells me? You love that car, right? If, if, if you give a lot of your money to golf, you know what that tells me? You love golf, right? If you give a lot of money to golf and, and, and your kids can't afford shoes, that tells me you love golf a lot more than your kids. You can say, no, 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 I love my kids, no, no, no. Love gives, and so if I want to know what you love, I follow where you give. That's where Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart is. There's a correlation between the two. Love gives. Love gives. If I look at your budget and I see that you spend 30% of your income feeding kids in another country, you love them. You do. Um, your, your, your heart directs your wealth. And so your wealth is an indicator of your heart. That's what he's saying. And he uses this example of love gives. And he says, one of the ways we know that we love is first of all, we give to God. He gave the example of Abel who came and gave his first fruits, first and best to the Lord. And then here he says above and beyond that, we should have additional resources and wealth that we should give to other people in need that we know, that we know that we're in relationship, that we're in community with, that we know that they're not going to waste the resources. They're not going to squander the opportunity. What he says is you can't say, I know you and I love you and you have a need, a physical, tangible, legitimate need and I could meet it, but I won't. He says, that's not love. That's not love because love, love gives. Let me say this, I'm gonna talk about money and if you resist it, you really need to hear it, okay? Because for some people, their thought is, why should I give God my money? <laughs> no, here, here's a better question. Is it my money? That's the first question. No, it's the Lord's money. I had somebody come up not long ago. They say, why should I give God 10% of my money? I said, isn't it awesome that God lets you keep 90% of his money? Like if anybody else wants to do that deal with me, I'll do it right now. Say, Pastor Mark, I'll give you 90, I'll give you, I'll give you 90% of my money. That's an amazing deal. God, God asks for a tithe, he asks for a tenth. You can argue whether it should be in the old covenant or the new covenant. I think that the old covenant says don't murder. The new covenant says don't have hatred in your heart. The old covenant says don't commit adultery. And Jesus says, don't commit adultery in your heart. I think that the new covenant under the power of the Holy Spirit, it, it actually elevates God's expectation for his people, doesn't diminish them. My view on tithing is it's a, it's a floor, not a ceiling. It's a place to begin, not a place to end. And so for me and my family, we, I got saved at 19 in college. We were college broke married, right? And Grace had a strong desire to give with her hands, right? She was a giver. And I, I was a new Christian. I'm like, we are married. 
we are college students and we are college marriage student broke, the Lord knows, you know? So, and I don't think that the pittance that we will give to the Lord will make any difference. But the truth is, it's not about how much is in your hands. It's really about what's in your heart. And so like the little boy that gave his fishes and loaves to Jesus and Jesus did amazing things with it, let's give it to Jesus and see what he does with it. So we started giving as a broke, newly married college couple we started at 10% and over the years, we were able to increase that amount every single year. And I'm happy to report that every year of our life, we have increased the percentage of our giving to the Lord. And our goal, our hope and our prayer is always, Lord, every year, let us give a higher percentage than we did last year. And here's the thing, it is a, it is a blessing to give. There are some that'll teach prosperity theology. You give to get, I don't believe that. There are others that teach poverty theology. You shouldn't have anything. I don't believe that. I don't care how much you make. I care what you do with it. And the Bible says it's more blessed to give than receive. And God so loved the world that he gave and God is a giver. And I believe that God is a joyful giver. And the Bible says that we should be cheerful givers. And so for me, um, God has really changed my heart in this. Um, We're a family, you need to know this. We like to give, we do. You cannot come to my house and leave without my wife giving you a present. My wife buys all kinds. We have, we have a lot of presents for people that haven't shown up yet. And if you leave my house, you're going to get something, man. You're just going to get something. And that's one of the reasons I married my wife. If I can get people to be a giver, I can change their whole life. Givers make better spouses, right? If any man wants to marry one of my daughters, I'd like to have you give me your daughter. Well, first thing is bring your tithe report because if Jesus can't motivate you to be generous, no one can. And I'm not gonna give you my daughter if you're not a giver. Why would I give this great gift to a taker? The world is filled with givers and takers. And what he's talking about here is that those who really love really give. How many of you have found it's true? It is more blessed to give than receive, just like the Bible says, true or false, that's true. True. How many of you are grandparents? Christmas comes, your biggest joy is opening your present or watching your grandkids open their present. It's always watching the kids and the grandkids open their present. If I can get someone to give, I can get someone to forgive. If I can get someone to be generous with their money, I can get them to be generous with their time, with their heart, with their words, with their emotion, with their service. We're talking about as a disposition of a giver and a giver is someone who says, okay, I give to the Lord and then I take my resources and I'm looking for opportunities above and beyond that to meet the actual physical needs of people. That's what he's saying here, that's love. And it's, it's saying, Lord, you're gonna put in my life people that have needs and I'm gonna be able to meet them and I get to love them by meeting that need, just like you love me. I prayed for my daily bread and you gave it and they're praying for their daily bread and maybe some of their daily bread will be some of my daily bread that I share with them and love because that's what families do. I grew up in a poor home. My dad was a union drywaller. I grew up up the street from a couple of strip clubs in an area that was all serial killers, two of them, literally. Not a nice neighborhood. I was the only kid in the family that had a dad and we were very poor. My dad hung sheetrock until he broke his back to feed five kids and my mom stayed home to watch all of us kids. We were poor. I've eaten food from a food bank. We were poor. And I could still remember school would be rolling around 
and my mom would take us to the Sears surplus store because we couldn't afford to go to the Sears, that was too fancy. So we'd go to the Sears surplus store and we bought something called a coat. You've never heard of these in Phoenix, Arizona, but they keep you warm when it's <laughs> something called cold and they keep you dry when it's something called wet. And so we would go get a coat for these two express purposes. And we would go to the Sears surplus because you got one coat every year. And you had to buy it a little big because if you grew and outgrew it, you weren't gonna get a second coat. And I remember we were at the Sears surplus and we all got our coats. And then my mom was putting extra coats in the cart. And I remember, I said, mom, what do you, we don't need all those coats. She said, there are kids in the neighborhood that don't have a coat. When they come over to play and they don't have a coat, we're gonna give them these coats. That was my mom. That's how she always lived. I thought, oh, that's right. And as a little boy, I remember thinking, I guess there are kids that don't have coats. And I started looking for kids that didn't have coats. And then if they'd come over to play at our house, I would say, do you have a coat? And I remember kids saying, I don't have a coat. See, these are the kids walking to school in a sweatshirt in the rain, soaking wet, freezing cold. Oh, mom. I found a kid that doesn't have a coat. Okay, Marky, bring him in. She called me Marky, uh, still does. She'd open up our little closet. She's like, okay, this coat will fit you. And she'd give the kid a coat and zip it up. And I remember thinking, this is a good thing to do. This is a good thing to do. I praise God for the fact that I didn't have wealthy parents, but I had generous parents. So I don't care what you make. I care what you do with it. As your pastor, that's what I would tell you. Some of you say, well, I want to make a lot of money. I'd say, well, that's great. Then give a lot of money. You can increase your standard of giving. You don't necessarily need to increase your standard of living. But you can be generous. And that's what he's saying here is meeting an actual physical need. So it's giving to the Lord, first fruits, and then it's looking for opportunities to meet the physical needs of others. Um, and we do this as a family. Um, some years ago, uh, my daughter came home and she said, Dad, how much is an attorney? I was like, oh, have I done something wrong? You know, that's a weird question from a little girl. She said, no, no, no. There was a, a young woman, single mother with a little girl. They had become Christians and I was their pastor. And she was getting a bit of child support and alimony from the ex who was not a good guy, very bad guy. And he wanted to reduce what he was giving to her. So he retained an attorney and he was gonna sue her for custody knowing that she couldn't afford an attorney that in an effort to keep her child from being taken, she would have to just wave goodbye to child support and alimony. And that was gonna bankrupt her. So this little girl was very stressed because there was a possibility that she couldn't live with her mom who was the only caregiving parent or that her mom would have to spend a lot of money on an attorney to defend herself legally. And this little girl brought it as a prayer request to my daughter. So my daughter said, I'll pay for your attorney. <laughs> my daughter, my little girl. And she's like, really, you can do that? She's like, yeah, because a little insight into our home, we give and then we set aside money and we look for opportunities to love people that we know. So my daughter's like, well, I got this pile of money and we give it away. So my daughter comes home <laughs> and she's like, dad, how much is an attorney? I was like, I don't know. She said, well, I promised today that we would cover the legal fees of my friend. <laughs> and we did. And she stayed with her mom 
right? And, and, and I don't regret that money at all. Whatever I was going to do with it, it wasn't as important as what she wanted to do with it. I, I, I want you to even think about in your own life, your own family, for those of you who are parents, how do you create a sense of generosity in your kids and how do you be a family that's looking for opportunities to be generous? And some of you say, I don't have a lot. You don't have to have a lot. You, you give out of what you have. That's what he's talking about. Now, this is truly love because if you have something and they need something and you say, good luck, I'll pray for you, that doesn't really help. Whether it's food or borrowing a car or giving them a car. I have a friend of mine. He's one of the most generous people I've ever met. I won't tell you his name. He's pretty well known. I asked him, how did you learn to be generous? He said, my dad was the most generous man I've ever met. He's given away over 100 cars. He said, my dad loved Jesus and loved people. He was a businessman. And if he would meet somebody that they were broke, their car broke down, single mom, kid had cancer, there was a need. They're like, could you pray for me? I need a car. He would hand them the keys and walk home. And he did it a hundred times. And he said, I watched my dad do that. And I grew up thinking, that's amazing. I want to be like that. And what he's saying is if we really love someone and we really know someone and we really know that they have an actual need, particularly if there's a Christian and there's an opportunity for us to meet it, if God's love is in us, then we will give gladly and generously because that's how Jesus treats us. That's how Jesus treats us. And I just get so sick. Every political season, I see people running for president and they tell us how much they gave. And I'm just like, that is pathetic. That is pathetic. That is, that is dishonorable. That is disgusting. That is frustrating. If your generosity goes all the way down to 3% and you want to lead 250 million people, we got to rethink everything. It's not the job of the government to take care of everybody. It's also the opportunity of the Christians to love practically. That's what he's getting to. And how do we know this? Because Jesus gave, look at this. I know it's a Bible study. I'm sort of leaning into preaching. I can't wait till I get to preach again, but let me just share this. <laughs> By this, we know what love is. The world has no concept or clue what love is. I love pizza. That's not love. You're sleeping with your girlfriend. I love her. No, you don't. This is how we know what love is that Jesus died for us. That's how we know what love is. Whenever the Bible talks about love, it ultimately points to Jesus' cross, that we know God loves us because Jesus died for us. This is where he says, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Uh, he says in 1 John 4, 10, we, we know that God loves us because he sent Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. He says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Love gives. Love gives. Love gives sacrificially. That's what he says. So what did God the Father give us? Jesus. Jesus. Whatever you give, it ain't that good, right? God gave us his first fruits. God gave us his firstborn son. God gave us his first and best. And so our relationships should be Supernatural, God gives and I give and God loves and I love and, and I give because I love and I, I give because I've been loved and given to. Okay, and this, and this, is, this is the heart of, of how we're to treat one another. It's amazing. It's amazing, John is saying, when, 
when God says, I'll give you my son, I'll give you my kingdom, I'll give you an eternal inheritance, I'll give you the forgiveness of sin, I'll give you righteousness, will you give them a ride in your car? Will you give them groceries? You're like, I don't know, I don't know, it seems like a lot. Then you don't understand the gospel, you don't understand the Lord, you don't understand. What he's saying is if you do understand, you're like, absolutely, it's all Jesus anyways and I'm gonna share it and I can't take it to the kingdom because here's the truth. Nothing that we have, we take with us except for memories and people. Everything you have, the Bible says, will be set on fire. And when you get to heaven, nothing that you have there will be anything that you created or earned. Everything you have, God will give you. He's building a house. You aren't in the kingdom. We don't get to the the heavenly kingdom and God doesn't hand us a hammer and nails and wood and says, good luck, go build something. He says, I built something, you live in it. Streets lined with gold, you didn't have to pave it and we didn't raise taxes for it. You're gonna sit down at the banqueting table and eat with all the nations, the choicest of meats and the finest of wines. And at the end, Jesus picks up the tab every night forever. Okay, and, 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 and this is the generous heart of God, amen? Okay, last one, I'll get to my point. Here's the point, love, that's the third option. The first two options are very natural. I hate those who hate me. I ignore those and am indifferent toward those who ignore me and are indifferent toward me. No, I love those who love me. I love those who are indifferent toward me and I love those who hate me because that's how God is. Verse John 18, little children, Sometimes we complicate things. Sometimes we think we're smarter than we are. Sometimes we just need to have not a childish faith, but a childlike faith. Simple. We look at kids and we say, okay, look, you need to love them and share your crayons. You need to love them and share your toys. You need to love them and, you know, share the ice cream. Kids are like, okay. And then we get older and it gets a little more complicated. We'd have a child-like faith, not a child-ish faith. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So in loving people, here's, does it say you need to like everybody? Does it say that? No, you know why? Some people are horrible. They're horrible people. And you can't like them because they're not likable, but you can love them. That's why the Bible says we can even love our enemies. That's supernatural, not natural. Does it say that you have to trust everybody? Does it say that? No, because some people are dangerous. They're not trustworthy. Do not trust them. Do not let them babysit your kids. Do not date them. Do not. But you can love them and protect yourself from them. Does it say that you need to be close friends with them? No, don't say that. You get to pick your friends. Jesus was friendly toward all and friends with a few. You should be friendly toward all and friends with a few. That's what it means to be loving. It's to be friendly, to care for others, but you get to pick your friends. He says that we should love, but not just in word or talk. How much love today is really just sentimental. It's not efficacious. It says a lot. It doesn't do a lot. When all is said and done, much is said and little is done. How many of you have ever listened to talk radio? This is the verse for talk radio. Everybody talking about things that they're not doing. This is what goes on in blogs and comments and social media. Blah, blah, blah. Lots of, lot is said, nothing's done. People should take care of one another. Do you? Um, 
I got a bad connection, click. You know, really? We live in a world where we like to talk about what everybody else should be doing rather than doing something ourselves. And love says, I will in word and deed, with my words and my works, I will receive God's love and I will share God's love with what I say and how I behave. This is an amazing opportunity. Now, here's the good news. The world is so corrupted, so angry, so upset, so conflicted, so violent, so perverted, so selfish, that it really gives the children of God an opportunity to love in a profound way that garners attention, not to us, but to Jesus. We're in a day when the the cultural mood is just anger. That's a natural response to a fallen, broken, flawed world. The supernatural response is love. I'm gonna speak of people in a way that is loving, which means sometimes I don't say anything. Just just not gonna say anything because that wouldn't be very loving. When I do speak, I'll try to speak words of life-giving truth. My deeds will be deeds that bring life, that show love, that provide generosity, that bless others. We live in a world that is filled with words and very devoid of works. So here's what I wanna do. I'm over time. So I wanna just spend a moment and I wanna schedule a meeting with you and the Holy Spirit, okay? I don't know your heart, just like, just like we couldn't look at Cain's heart or Abel's heart and know their heart. I can't look at your heart and you can't look at my heart. And we can't know one another's hearts, but God knows our hearts. And so what we wanna to do today is we wanna invite the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and to reveal to us, Holy Spirit, is there anybody that I really do hate? Is there anybody that I'm indifferent toward because I'm hard-hearted toward them and I really need to do business with you today? Is there anybody that I could do a better job loving with my words and my works? Is there anybody I need to be generous toward or forgive or apologize to or at least start to pray for so that my hardened heart begins to thaw toward them? And so I'm just gonna read the Bible. I believe that faith comes by hearing the word of God. And I believe that the same Holy Spirit who wrote the scriptures will take the scriptures and he'll speak to you. He'll bring a name or a face to mind. Someone that you need to have a heart change with today so that even if you came in here with a heart of Cain, you can leave here with a heart of Abel because the truth is to some degree, we're all Cain and Jesus is Abel. That Jesus came and he died for our sins, which means we murdered him. And unlike Abel, he rose from death to forgive us and to love us and to send the Holy Spirit to change us and to make us like him. So on this question of love, and am I a loving person? Do I treat other people with love? I'm gonna read the verse in 1 Corinthians 13. I just want you to listen to it. Um, This is the favorite wedding verse for all young couples, amen? If you go to a wedding, you've heard this verse. Let me pray for you first. Holy Spirit, for this meeting that we're now gonna have with you individually and collectively, please take your word and apply it to your people. Reveal to them if there's anyone that they hate. 
if there's anyone that they're indifferent toward, if there's anyone that they love or can grow to love better in word and deed. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, just maybe close your eyes for a moment, bow your head and just listen. Everybody close your eyes, bow your head. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not arrogant or rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. Keep your eyes closed. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but Jesus rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. Jesus' love never ends. Keep your eyes closed. Are you patient and kind? Do you envy or boast? Are you arrogant or rude? Do you insist on your own way? Are you irritable or resentful? Do you rejoice at wrongdoing or do you rejoice with the truth? Do you bear all things? Do you believe all things? Do you hope all things? Do you endure all things? Has your love for someone ended? If you're married, hold hands with your spouse and I'll pray for you. If you're here with your kids, put a hand on them and we'll pray together. Lord God, thank you that you are loving. That though we were either indifferent toward you or hating of you, your response to us was love. And you sent your only son to be able and to hand him over to a world of Cain's. Lord Jesus, you came with purity in your hands and purity in your heart. And you revealed the impurity in our hands and the impurity in our hearts. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were the better able, that you rose from death, that you didn't stay dead in the grave, and that you died in the place of all of us Cain's. And you chose to love us and to forgive us and to embrace us and to be generous toward us, to give us forgiveness and life, to give us the Holy Spirit, a new nature, citizenship in your kingdom, adoption into the Father's family. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the one who takes our worst and gives his best. And so, Lord, we ask for the Holy Spirit to enable us to respond and treat others in a way that is not natural, but supernatural. Not treat them the way that they treat us, but treat us the way that the Lord Jesus has treated us. To respond to indifference with love, to respond to hate with love, and to respond to love with love.
God, if there are any people that you have brought to mind today for those that I have the honor of teaching, may they forgive them, may they love them, may they bless them, may they pray for them. May they unburden themselves today of that hatred in their heart or that indifference in their life, and may they love them. And maybe some of those people, Lord, will never even know what happened today. Maybe they'll never understand the transition. That's okay. You know their heart, and they know their heart. So God, I pray for my friends today that the Holy Spirit would come and give us the ability to respond supernaturally and to treat others the way that Jesus has treated us. In Jesus' good name, amen.